Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Last week, I had the chance to catch up with Jeremy Green at the History of Science Society meeting in Chicago to discuss his new book, Generic, The Unbranding of Modern Medicine, published this past August by Johns Hopkins University Press. Generic takes readers in a whirlwind trip through the making of the modern pharmaceutical industry, viewed through the lens of generic drugs, which were a crucial node in a sprawling web of efforts to rationalize therapeutics in the beginning of the 20th century and onward. We tend to associate generic drugs with the ability to to choose between specific chemical agents, uh, stripped of any branding that would differentiate between them. Yet the history of generic medicines reveals a highly politicized arena in which the very idea of chemical and physiological similarity was hotly contested and questioned as such for the first time. As Jeremy shows us, generics were rife with controversy when they were first introduced because they challenged the existing practice of branding as assurance of quality. By boldly asking if there is really any such thing as a generic drug, Jeremy inverts preconceived notions about the use of chemical names to rationalize the pharmaceutical marketplace, revealing that like all products, they were socially, politically, and economically constructed. On the whole, it's a fascinating book that calibrates the history of modern medicine with consumer and legal history, as well as the history of technology more generally. 
The poignant narratives and vibrant marketing paraphernalia used to weave together the big picture of generic drugs in the U.S. are sure to entertain and stimulate the thoughts of many audiences. Along with the next book I'll be discussing, Joe Gabriel's Medical Monopoly, Generic is a remarkable entry in a growing field of pharmaceutical studies that only becomes more important as the issue of healthcare provision dominates presidential agendas and holds a prominent spot in the public sphere of debate. I urge you to go out and read these books in order to gain a richer appreciation of the legacy of these issues. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Mikey McGovern with New Books in Medicine, uh, coming at you today from the History of Science Society meeting in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm here with uh, Jeremy Green today to talk about his new book, Generic. So Jeremy is a professor of the history of medicine and of medicine at uh, Johns Hopkins University. And uh, in addition to maintaining scholarly practice, uh, Jeremy's also an, a clinician still, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, no, I, internal I, medicine. I see patients uh, once a week at the East Baltimore Medical Center, which is a fascinating and complex urban health center in East Baltimore. <laughs> so in many ways, the, the clinic is a site of ethnographic engagement where one is constantly struck by the social dimensions that constrain access to care and the, the nature of the categories we use in contemporary medicine. <laughs> That's a, that actually relates to something I wanted to ask you about a bit later. <laughs> sure. But, um, but so, and then, you know, so, um, Jeremy's written two books, actually. This book, uh, Generic, is the second. The first book, Prescribing by Numbers, was sort of about the, and I guess really the co-construction of both um, medicines and health conditions. So sort of looking at the interplay between um, how we think about, um, you know, human health and its measurement and uh, the actual marketing and existence of pharmaceuticals. But this book turns its attention toward uh, the market for generic drugs and sort of takes us through a history that is both a labor history um, a, a legal history and a, a scientific history. So there's so many there's so many aspects that are fascinating about this, and from the perspectives of consumerism, and also from just you know even you know those basic like philosophical questions that inform a lot of good history of science. Right? What does it mean to say that two substances are equivalent? So I'm really excited to be talking more about the book today with Jeremy. And yeah, welcome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Michael. It's really a pleasure to be able to take part in this, and I. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you enjoyed reading the book. It was a pleasure to write. It took about 10 years. And um, <laughs> it, uh, as you mentioned, it, it took me through a lot of new and unfamiliar terrain, um, both in terms of some basic existential epistemological questions about how we know what we know in medicine, but through a lot of other areas in which I had to develop some, if not expertise, at least some new familiarity in legal studies and business history, um, in consumer history, in different forms of regulatory politics. And uh, this is one of the strengths I see of this, I guess I could call it an emerging field of pharmaceutical studies, what happens when you take an object like a drug and use it to tie together or to meander across uh, a number of different disciplines and a number of different um, forms of social life that inform uh, the way that science governance um, and practice of everyday life come together in American society. So it's hard to pin down exactly what the genre of the book is, <laughs> right. um, but it, it, it did grow out of the first project, Prescribing by Numbers. And in a way, you know, as, as historians, um, in, in order to convince ourselves that we don't just write stories the way that we would like to see the world, um, to move beyond a pat analysis, uh, it, we always look for things that push back and surprise us, things that we find in the archive in literatures that we didn't expect that give us this hint that there is some empirical work being done, something of the research that pushes back against our interpretations. 
And for me, the, the book as a whole arose out of one of these observations when I was doing the research for prescribing by numbers. Um, this is a this first book is really about um, how how drugs, um, especially over the last fifty years have emerged as powerful mediating forces in the way we define disease. And I was particularly interested in how we define this emerging category of asymptomatic diseases, diseases that don't have patients with symptoms, that just have numbers and thresholds that can be defined and redefined and lowered. And every time they are lowered and attached to guidelines that involve hundreds of thousands of physicians and millions of patients newly consuming drugs with a stroke of a pen, uh, I became really interested in the role of marketing and how the pharmaceutical marketplace interacted with clinical research and the production and circulation of medical knowledge. One of the things that I, I guess was an assumption I carried into the book project initially is that this is all the work of brand name drugs. Right. And that generic drugs did not suffer from this problem. Generic drugs somehow represented um, the generic name, denoted a chemical. Generic drugs have things like pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic, true scientific properties, whereas the brand name drug was kind of this label plastered on top of the underlying meaning, and that the distance between brand and generic was an inflated price, or in many ways like the distance between uh, Marx's concept of use value and exchange value, exchange value right? right? And that the generic was the true medicine, and the brand name was symbolic of all of these problems that we have in American medicine and the commodification of care. But... As I did the research for that book, I began to realize it, it didn't really work out that way in a number of ways. On the one hand, brand names and generics were not always exactly the same thing. And pinning down what it meant to be the same thing was more than just a marketing smokescreen on the part of brand name companies to distance themselves and create an incommensurability compared to generic products. There were real forms of difference. The question really became, did those differences matter? And who got to decide what forms of difference matter? And so somewhere in that observation... It was a it was thought that wormed, wormed around inside me for a while and um, led through a number of fascinating archival finds. Um, and yeah, and th- that's another thing I wanted to ask you about is, <laughs> you know, you, you say in the uh, acknowledgments that you had to work pretty closely with people um, at the FDA using the Freedom of Information Act to actually get access to some of this because it's a, it's a wealth of material and a lot of people in the health studies really do, of course, want to see sort of what goes on in these, uh, in certain legal proceedings and see what goes on at these firms in the first place. It's such a, there's such a veil over all of it, really, because of, you know, information security on their part. But, you know, it's really fascinating what you were able to uncover. What was that process like? So the process actually isn't that difficult. It's just it's just a bit of a crapshoot. You don't know exactly what you're going to find with FOIA, with Freedom of Information Act. Right. Right. A lot of paperwork as well. Um, there's a lot of paperwork. Um, <laughs> there are some very helpful people at the FDA that want these resources to be more available. And I would really recommend for any researchers interested in this question, uh, John Swan and Suzanne White-Junod of the History Office of the Food and Drug Administration are really invaluable resources in guiding through this process. But essentially, you submit a request, and you have to have a hunch that, that the kind of thing you're looking for exists. <laughs> so one of the things that helped me was... Um, noticing that um, a few researchers before me, particularly Harry Marks, who is actually my precursor in the chair I currently hold at Johns Hopkins, um, Harry had found access to a, a group of files called AF jackets. And these jackets, when you started looking at them, contain the correspondence between the Food and Drug Administration and firms. Mm-hmm. And if you can identify a group of firms, and for me, the question was looking back and saying, well, 
when did the generic drug industry emerge? What were the early firms? How does one cast a wide net to, to find a number of different players that may have been involved in forming this industry? And it was a bit tough because the generic drug industry is somewhat of a self-effacing industry. At least it was until perhaps the last decade when it's been incredibly prominent. So I managed to cast a wide net, and what came back in were just boxes and boxes worth of correspondence with firms that represented such different ways of being a drug company. And I guess if I could mm-hmm. extend on that for a moment, yeah. one of the insights that surprised me initially is that there is no generic, generic drug company, that there are many different ways of trying to make and sell the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when you think about generic drugs, I think a lot of commentators on the industry over the years just assume that generic drug companies only compete on price alone. So whoever can make the cheapest drug wins. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's actually not the case at all. There's all this rich form of differentiation of different kind of claims of similarity. So some of these early firms were what would have been called ethical firms in the late 19th century, right? right. They differentiated themselves from patent drug makers, but ethical firms that didn't succeed in the way that the Merck's and Pfizer's and Upjohn's of the world succeeded in developing research and development labs. Some ethical drug firms just continue to sell the same drugs. And after a while, they begin to realize that what they were selling um, didn't have value in terms of these innovative new drugs, but by the second half of the 20th century, especially in the 60s, as Medicare and Medicaid in- indicated increased governmental involvement in paying for drugs, mm-hmm. that, that by claiming to make the same thing cheaper, they could, have, they could actually market a new form of value for themselves. Mm-hmm. Other companies just joined, and there's a company, so the Cot Cola Corporation, um, after the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, created a new subdivision called Medicare <laughs> that would make generic drugs. Um, but of course, this is from a company that only had experience making soft drinks at that point. <laughs> and one of my favorite companies is called um, Bolar, which was founded by uh, Robert Schulman and Larry Reisfeld. In the that, was, that was a really interesting story in the book, actually. It's a, so, as, so as you remember, it's, you know, Bob and Larry form a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> right. It's the Bob and Larry pharmaceutical company, and that <laughs> becomes Bolar. And Bolar becomes a fascinating, and just following the FDA's, um, taking this very intransigent company that has almost no knowledge of how to uh, apply for permission to, to market a drug at all, gradually get roped into a regulatory framework and, and right. to the point of becoming a legitimate generic drug manufacturer. Right, because they, they sort of play this game of sort of ignorance about the kind of legal strictures around this and because they're just trying to innovate sort of cheaper ways to manufacture these drugs, right? <laughs> and yeah. So, so the, they see that as their work as sort of being creative tinkerers, but <laughs> in fact, that doesn't really mesh with... Uh, well, I guess then the still sort of nascent regulatory framework around, you know, competing types of generic drugs, if I'm correct. No, I, I think that's a very good way to, to frame it. That, that here you have a, a market space that emerges with a number of different entrepreneurs finding their way in and making that market space around them. And one of the things I've realized is most historians of medicine, to the extent that we think about generic drugs, assume them as somewhat of a naturalistic part of a life course, a very structuralized life course of a drug. You know, you have this patent-protected era, and then the patent expires, and then the invisible hand does its magic, and all of these competitors are just making cheaper products. And we accept that, even as we are critical of other things. We accept this as somehow being a, a, a naturalized way of understanding drugs, but that's actually an entirely historically specific construct that really is only valid um, beginning in the middle of the 20th century, if it ever really is. <laughs> um, and so, so 
we realize that we've assumed the generic drug industry to be something other than a private sector. It's often valorized and moralized as a, as a moral industry as opposed to an immoral big pharma. You have this moralized, you know, valiant little pharma that helps serve the health of the public. Right. But when you open up and take a look at it, the generic drug industry is neither moral nor immoral. It's, it's amoral. It's as amoral as any other pharmaceutical firm. And trying to understand how in that amoral space these diff very different marketing practices and production practices take shape is, I think, one of the goals of the book. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, and it, and it is really interesting what you're able to do with at least sort of just focusing in on the, all the contingencies of the moment and how, you know, very practical sorts of actions do lead downstream to consequences and public perceptions of these things. Like you say, this construction of, you know, the immoral big pharma and then the, uh, the moral little guys producing generics that everyone can access. But then even before, so even before then, though, I kind of want to dial back to kind of earlier in the book when sure. you're, uh, you're talking about essentially, so this, this, we have this idea that, um, if we can, or perhaps it's, it's somewhat circulating that, um, if a drug is cheaper, there are scientific ways to test it clearly and demarcate between different, uh, substances and qualities. And that, you know, we sort of see the cheapness of drugs as this, um, sort of as imbued with an ethic of, uh, universality and access. But <laughs> I mean, back when some of these upstart firms, uh, I think this is back in the 1940s, back when some of these upstart firms uh, began sort of marketing anonymous drugs, there was a huge public backlash against, um, the dr against these drugs because the only way that the public had to identify with the sort of, um, I guess, efficacy and um, even you know, legitimacy of a medicine was to have trust in the brand name. So there was really a lot of um, a lot of public backlash against these sort of uh, these early players. So could you could you take us back into that for a bit? <laughs> sure. So and it's a large question because in in a sense there are imitative products and markets for imitative products in medicine um, well before the mid twentieth century. And and one book which I think does a, a nice job opening up these questions in the nineteenth century is. Uh, uh, just recently released a book called Medical Monopoly by Joe Gabriel. One of, one of my upcoming interviews. Right. No, and I think these two <laughs> books are actually, they read very well together. Um, in, in some ways, this book takes up where, 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 where Gabriel's book leaves off. But just to say that there's a longer history of imitative medicines. And one of the things that both Joe Gabriel and I trace in our books is this tension between um, public and private standards of value and efficacy and safety and quality in medicines. And of course, there's a public standard that is even in its own origin, a private standard, which is the United <laughs> States Pharmacopeia. And the United States Pharmacopeia really is, it's a, it's a book that ties words to things, right? right. That how do you know that, that this, what it says on the label is in the bottle? Uh, if you open up the Pharmacopeia, you can look for an entry, you know, acetyl salicylic acid, you know, acid or uh, you know, diacetyl morphine. And the pharmacopoeia will give you the chemical structure. It will give you proofs, like tests you can do with available reagents to make sure the chemical is what right. it claims to be. Proofs and, and, and for purity. In, in your book, it's so nice how you actually you're able to uh, make these visible to people to sort of see. Okay, to actually test the difference between drugs, you're sort of just generally relying upon trained eye to see exactly when, say, after adding so much iodine, something does turn black or purple yeah. or yellow. So yeah. it's really quite a tacit process, isn't it? Well, and the pharmacopoeia, <laughs> you know, can be traced back centuries. It's really it's an right. early modern construction. What becomes interesting to me in the 20th century is the kind of added weight and responsibilities the pharmacopoeia takes on. So in 1820, the first United States Pharmacopoeia Convention gathers. It's, the meetings are held in Congress physically, 
although it's a private entity, it's really physicians, pharmaceutical manufacturers, and pharmacists coming together to define these standards and publish their first volume of how do you know when a drug's a drug. Mm. And yet, at the same time that pharmaceutical companies are coming together to help define these public standards, individual firms, especially as they grow over the 19th and then the early 20th century, have a stake in defining a separate space for their private standards that, well, sure, on some level, all morphine is morphine, but our morphine is held to a higher standard of quality. And these are, as reminding you know, there's ads of Hebrew national franks, you know, in, in the late 20th, early 21st century that we answer to a higher authority. In essence, some aspect of this is crucial to ethical pharmaceutical measuring. Manufacturing. Most ethical pharmaceutical manufacturers are selling the same drugs. They're not. They're not based on patent monopolies, right? right. Um, and so, different firms differentiate themselves on the basis of quality. And Jonathan Liebenau has discussed this a bit in his history of the American pharmaceutical industry. That when you see science entering uh, the American pharmaceutical industry and in a laboratory becoming useful in its earliest stages, it's really as a means of selling drugs that he calls a scientific marketing. So Park Davis can claim that they have an analytical laboratory that can guarantee that the dosimetry of their ergot preparations is superior to any other ergot preparation. Sure, other companies make ergot. Ergot is ergot, but our ergot is delivered at a level of quality and, and dosimetry that is proven by exacting scientific measurements, and that's why you should trust us more. Right, so, so, in, so in a way claims about quality are reliant upon existing sets of standards and sort of modifications of claims about, you know, how they either uphold or exceed standards, right? Exactly. And and here this is this fascinating tension between public and private standards. That, uh, this reminds me of some very important work that's taken place in the field of history of technology over the past you know, 10, 10 years or so, um, particularly the work of Amy Slayton, who, who has written a very nice um, piece on the that the politics of what it makes to call something as near as practicable, that <laughs> as learned, you know, as engineers, as, as people working in industry come together to form public standards, they don't want to work themselves out of a job. So there's always a little bit of space left. And in the pharmaceutical industry, that space is occupied by something that becomes referred to as pharmaceutical know-how. And you see this play out in the brand versus generic debates in the mid-20th century that brand name pharmaceutical firms will say, yes, we acknowledge that the the chemical is the important part of the drug and that generic drugs have the same chemical as our brand name drugs do. But the chemical is not all that a drug is. When you purchase a drug, you purchase a sophisticated technology mm -hmm. that delivers that chemical where it needs to be in your body. And the quality of all kinds of different dimensions of how that pill or tablet is manufactured um, affects how it actually works as a product. So this concept that it's not enough to just have the public standards, you have to also have the pharmaceutical know-how to deliver them into meaningful product, this right. tension between public and private. So, But you are right, though, in that in, you know, in, in the mid-20th century, many physicians, many consumers are taught that they really can only trust private standards of quality, that mm -hmm. public standards are, are sufficient to help you know you're getting a given chemical they're not enough to know you're getting the drug that will work for you. Mm -hmm. And I think one of, one of the one of my favorite illustrations of that in your in your book is uh, I believe this was with the drug chloromycetin, but you talk mm -hmm. about how uh, 
there was a pet shop owner who used to treat his fish tanks with chloromycin and it would always you know, dissolve within about a minute or so. And so upon buying of the new generic version, he, he was very excited that he was going to be able to buy the same drug for cheaper and drops in his fish tank. And, you know, still hours later, it just hasn't dissolved because it's using, it's made using a different filler. So it's the exact same substance, but the, you know, kind of exigencies, the manufacturing and the packaging of that substance make it such that it acts entirely differently. So and I thought that was, that was a really nice illustration. I'm sure there are countless more. <laughs> well, the chloromycetin example is, is, a, is a very important one. And it, again, a story that one can trace through a number of different kinds of archival sources and, and, and congressional hearings and mm-hmm. you know, clinical literatures. But one of the things to recapture in the story is that chloromycetin, which generically termed as chloramphenicol, was um, Park Davis's blockbuster drug at the moment in time. Like a huge percentage of their annual revenue came through this one drug. And as, as its patent expert neared, not only Park Davis employees, but the, the business community at large, you know, um, the business pages of newspapers and magazines began to write speculatively what is going to happen when this drug goes off patent. And this is a genre mm-hmm. of reporting that we now know. It's a very common genre. It's like the patent cliff. When Lipitor, uh, was, when Pfizer was about to lose his patent on Lipitor in 2011, there was, there was so much anticipatory reporting on this. But that's the reporting that happened. This is the first time I've really seen such a large, uh, visible attention in the national press on a drug going generic and the mm-hmm. problems that would emerge there. And as you mentioned, one of the, one of the to Park Davis's great fortune, one of the manufacturers of a generic version used a starch as a filler in the pill, even though it had the same amount of chloramphenicol. Um, and this fish fancier found the scum floating on top and told the Park Davis salesman. Park Davis made a lot of hay with that. It led to studies being done on volunteers. Um, and well, volunteers, in quotations here, many of these volunteers were prisoners. Um, yeah. But And one of these studies found that you could take a generic version of this antibiotic, this very important life or death drug, and it would contain exactly the same amount of antibiotic, swallow it, and it would come out the other end completely undissolved. Um, and so this illustration of the difference between chemical equivalents, you could have a chemically equivalent drug that was completely therapeutically useful, really cracked open this problem of brand and generic exchangeability in entirely new light by the late 1960s. Right, and then that sort of begot its own scientific uh, fields of study so that you look at the emergence of a little bit of pharmacokinetics and also look at how you know, biological equivalence is studied through, uh, through testing on animals. And this, you know, essentially ways to try to standardize effects because obviously for therapeutics at one level, there's the quality control on the part of the firms to, you know, ensure that something they're making is chemically pure. But there's also, then you get new re- regimes of quali- uh, quality control and also, you know, regimes of um, regulation uh, from, out, from external bodies and needs to sort of demonstrate sufficient proof um, to the FDA and also, you know, to the public. So, and that sort of begets what you call more the sciences of similarity um, in a, I guess, in a different, um, in, in a sort of different register than they were previously. Yeah. No, I, I thanks, for, thanks for bringing that up. I Part of what drew me to the subject is recognizing that the field of history of medicine had engaged very closely with the emergence of sciences of difference, sciences of racialized difference, sciences right. of gender and sex differences, and ways in which different, different regimes and different epistemological moments and social and political contexts had given rise to different kinds of determinisms. But 
that there was an equally important study of the science of similarity that I thought our field had not really attended to quite as much. Mm -hmm. And one of the things one finds looking at generic drugs, uh, again, generic drugs are commodities. In some ways, they're one of the most commodified parts of the medical realm. And I structured the book to think about how we can think about commodities. The first sections are really about production. Where does the generic name come from? Where does the generic industry come from? How do we begin making these things that claim to be the same? The middle, the, the last part of the book is about consumption. But the middle part is really about circulation. And in my mind, these sciences of similarity form a key set of protocols that allow us to begin to have confidence or create modes of governance to invest these objects with fungibility, exchangeability, and the ability to move back and forth and say that they are actually functionally the same, which is key to how the generic market works. Right. But the, again, one thing that surprised me and pushed back is that there was no one moment in which a science of generic similarity emerged, that there actually there were many sciences. And part of the problem of studying the nature of the generic is that these are regimes not of identicality, but of similarity, right? Mm -hmm. And as we study similarity, we realize, well, what does it mean to be similar? Well, it means to be the same in all ways that matter. And yet knowing what ways matter quickly opens up these Rumsfeldian questions of you know, known <laughs> knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just to, to make an analogy, yeah. if we think about how the field of uh, organic chemistry has developed over time and trying to figure out what what compounds are the same and how you know they're the, they're the same. You know, you can look towards, towards a moment in the 19th century where the formulas seem to be the most important way of designating a compound and how many carbons, how many hydrogens, how many oxygens. And it's only with the demonstration of the importance of structure, right, in that you can actually have two molecules with the same amount of, you know, think of a tinker toy set, right, the same balls right. and sticks, and yet you can, if you put them together differently, they have different boiling points and melting points. And yet, even this concept of isomerism, it's later on um, fractured open on new forms of difference, what we call optical isomerism or enantiomers. If you have a left-handed or a right-handed form of the same structure, if you look at it in a mirror, these two molecules will have the same boiling points and melting points, but they may have a very different pharmacological function. The left-handed form could be a poison, the right-handed form could be a cure. So right. I know chemical analogies aren't necessarily the most accessible analogies, but in my <laughs> mind, this illustrates this process of how everything is the same, can be considered to be the same until we find new forms of difference that we hadn't attended to before that matter. In a way, the whole illustration with chloromycetin is an example of this. Chemical equivalence is sufficient until the point when it isn't, and then biological equivalence becomes important. Right. But as you're mentioning, biological equivalence or bioequivalence is also not in itself sufficient to handle all claims of possible generic difference, quality controls, different forms of marketing, um, uh, epidemia, increasing the epidemiology of drug experience over time, generate new sciences of how we call things the same or different. Right. And then e but even still at the end of the day, um, you know, some firm can always, or some advertising can make the claim, you know, the drug that's tested and there's a really great uh, illustration of an ad in the book, uh, you know, the drug that's tested is never the one that the patient actually is, you know, imbibing and relying upon. So yeah. there's always this level of like potential, you know, dropouts of, you know, uh, secure identity that, you know, are, it's, it basically saturates the entire, <laughs> the entire enterprise, really. <laughs> it, it really does. And, and in a way that becomes, on the one hand, you know, pernicious, but also somewhat intractable, intractable. How does, how does one, um, eradicate brand thinking from American medicine to 
is a very, very hard proposition to consider. Right. And again, it, at the beginning of my study of generics, I, I, I viewed it as a problem. The, the brand is a problem. American, American health values brands. We, we commodify medicine. We create these areas of waste. We turn healthcare from a right into a good. Studying the generic for me was initially a backdoor into analyzing the problem of the brand. Mm -hmm. And yet, as I pursued the study more, I began to realize that, again, these dichotomies don't work out as easily as we want them to. And rather than seeing the generic as a way of unmasking the brand, I began to realize that there's a very complex set of interests of those who want to see generic drugs as exchangeable, you know, generic manufacturers, uh, insurers, regulators, um, some consumer groups. And those who want to see generic and brand name drugs as incommensurable, pharmaceutical manufacturers and physicians. Physicians, exactly. And rather than see all of the knowledge production at that intersection as just being politically tainted, we realize that it really forms a fascinating dialectic where you have a thesis and an antithesis. And what emerges of that intersection are these new forms of knowledge making. And as you mentioned before, pharmacokinetics, this field of how one studies how drugs uh, move in different parts of the body um, is a vital part of how students learn medicine these days. Mm -hmm. It did not exist prior to the brand generic name controversies. You have this generative emergence of new forms of knowledge making that can't be reduced down to one interested form alone. They come at the intersection of these powerful interested positions in medicine. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you bring up the uh, exchangeability because I thought that one of the other really interesting, I mean, you locate a lot of different uh, kinds of, you know, contests in different places, but one of the most, you know, fascinating and perhaps the most familiar ones is looking at, you know, at the level of um, an individual physician prescribing a drug and the pharmacist, uh, you know, determining whether or not, you know, if a certain brand or a certain kind of specific generic is in stock, what is actually equivalent and what is actually exchangeable. And this was, I mean, you trace this out in a bunch of, in a bunch of different state legislatures, particularly uh, in New York, if I remember uh, correctly. But basically this, the idea that certain drugs could be exchanged more readily for one another was really a very kind of local thing. I mean, it was always, it was contested at the level of states and it was mostly contested between, you know, certain uh, physicians who felt that their authority was being compromised, um, you know, by pharmacists. And then, Pharmacists who, in their own, uh, you know, they weren't they weren't actually uh, through their actions trying to compromise any higher up, um, you know, authority or knowledge. They were sort of simply trying to do the best in their practice using available knowledge about what might be equivalent. So there's just so many, you know, areas of like slippage <laughs> between these different sorts of practices. But I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on exchangeability and how I mean how these sort of regimes of exchange became legitimated. Sure, and I, I it's it's a key question of the book and. Um, again, a, a subject that really opened up in ways that I didn't expect at the outset of my research. One of the things that grew out of studying these sciences of similarity and these protocols is, is that they could be determined um, and contested at the FDA, for example, ultimately, and yet still their implementation um, to make things exchangeable is not just a matter of producing forms of scientific knowledge that are agreed upon. It also is tied into a complex legal structure, which I refer to as the laws of substitution, right? So um, how is the legal structure set up to either permit or prohibit exchange? Um, how are financial incentives set up in, in institutions like uh, government reimbursement and private insurance uh, incentives to help things be substituted one for another? And 
you know, as 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 you know in, in the book, there, there's um, there's this fascinating um, shift that takes place from a set of laws that are passed throughout the country by the by the 1950s, which are anti-substitution laws, and these laws emerge because of a political action group that is largely supported by a union of pharmaceutical firms and pharmacists and also physicians that um, want to define brand generic substitution as a unethical and illegal act for pharmaceuticals. And they're successful in almost every state in the country. So by the time generic drugs are growing in popularity among uh, among consumer groups and, and, and government regulators in the late 60s, early 70s, some, some state attorney generals are actually advising pharmacists to substitute, even though it's technically illegal, so that Medicaid, so that you know, <laughs> patients will actually get less expensive drugs. So you right. wind up with this very local set of conflicts about these legal structures. Ultimately, these, these, um, these laws are overturned in, in all of the states and replaced by pro substitution laws. But these laws are still very variable. So in some states, they just allow generic substitution. In others, they mandate it. In some states, substitution happens only if a physician puts a signature allowing it. In other states, substitution happens unless. The only reason substitution won't happen is if a physician signs a form making sure that something doesn't get substituted. So we have this patchwork of state, very, very different state by state structures of how generic drugs get utilized that persist to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, we, we have a similar heterogeneous landscape of different insurers promote um, or incentivize the use of, of generic drugs. Right. And again, somehow you find in here this tension about the concept of substitution. So what is a substitute? You know, is a substitute this useful functional thing that helps you achieve goals in times of duress? Um, and I make the, the, the metaphor to, for example, a substitute teacher who is not your regular teacher, right? But assuming for at least that day should help be qualified enough to help a high school class make its way along a certain pro- progress in their curriculum, or a substitution of form of deception, um, such as what happens if you go to a restaurant and order a Coca-Cola and someone serves you an RC Cola or a Pepsi without asking you if it's explicitly okay mm-hmm. for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And this is, these twin phases of substitution is something which helps make a system more functional on the one hand versus a form of deception that, um, that can take advantage of gullible consumers on the other really persists to this day in legal structures surrounding the problems of generic drug use. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's, uh, as you were talking, I was sort of just thinking about how, you know, these different sort of local and state attitudes toward, um, you know, substitution and the relationship between, um, you know, w- what the government allows to be permissible, the authority of physicians and what is, you know, economically necessary is perhaps one way to begin to look at, you know, differences between states and differences of opinions about things like you know, universal health care. You know, what is that? I mean, the, the concept is just foreign to most people, probably because, you know, in the U.S., at least, uh, it's always been it's always been mediated in such a you know local, at least at the state level, um, sort of way. So, I mean, it's, it's one way to begin to think about, <laughs> I guess, you know, differences and le- how, how legal differences actually um, manifest themselves in the availability of certain kinds of care and commodities. But that's that's interesting. So we don't have too much time because they're uh, uh, they're beginning to set up for the session in here. But I did want to ask you. Um, a bit more about, so the last chapter of the book, you talk about uh, global generics. And actually, it sort of brings things full circle because the book begins with a discussion on nomenclature mm-hmm. and how 
um, you know, international attempts to standardize nomenclature so that, you know, the same drug could be, you know, made available um, you know, during times of war um, when, you know, let's say physicians were caring, let's say the same American physician is working in France and has to sort of perform some kind of emergency responsibility. How does one request the same exact substance? Um, so th th this issue about, you know, sort of the global and translating between different, um, you know, kinds of pharmaceutical practice and things themselves, right? Um, then it comes full circle at the end when you talk about um, the marketplace for global generics and how sort of, I mean, you focus mostly on um, you know, countries like India that become, you know, major, major manufacturers of uh, generics in such a way that the West becomes um, highly dependent on, I guess, the... I guess the differentials between, um, you know, labor value, right, and how essentially in India, because of the because of both the regulatory policies and the um, attempts to sort of assert um, itself in the global scientific marketplace, you get basically a framework where you've got lots and lots and lots of pharmaceutical firms making generic drugs. Some of them have become huge leaders, but you just get, um, you know just a huge multi multiplication of all of these different firms. And then you also have at the same time as, at the same time as more of these substances are available, you also have sort of global politics that uh, decide that things made um, elsewhere are still not quite equivalent just because they're made elsewhere. So there's one, there's one really evocative story. I think you're talking um, when you talk about how, um, about like a ship bringing a bunch of big shipment of a few tons of the generic from India. Um, like was, was it over to the U S it was stopped by, at some point along the way, it was stopped by Dutch officials and essentially just sent back as sort of, you know, being like illegal or not properly regulated. But it was actually totally fine. It was just sort of an attempt to use international policing to kind of, you know, keep their, I mean, ma maintain certain stakes or maintain the market in a certain way. So I just, if you could expand a bit on sort of where you see the global in this project, that would be really cool. Sure. I know. It, it, it's, a, it's a great set of questions. And this is one of the problems of writing history that uh, ends so close to the present is and there's several more chapters I would have liked to write about that. <laughs> and it's very hard to stop. And at some point you have to find a stopping point. Um, I would also want to say that although the frame of the global is very important, especially in the very beginning and the end of the book, the book itself is not a global history of generics. And, and it's very important to understand this is a local history. Itself, right. But we're talking about the generic industry in the United States. And the reason I think that that's a reasonable thing to do is that generics become important in the United States far earlier than in, say, other uh, industrialized democracies in Western Europe um, because they are a free market solution to a public health problem. And although we tend to think of them as a progressive set of uh, actors and policies, again, they are free market actors. So it's fascinating that the solution to a problem of escalating drug price in the United States was never to do, say, what happened in the U.K., where you have a central payer from a national health service that can actually argue, negotiate with brand name manufacturers to get reasonable prices. Um, we've never collectively been able to do that in the United States. So instead, our way of dealing with access and drug prices collectively in terms of our public policies was to produce a set of policies that encourage this generic industry space. Um, so, we'll, so it's a private sector solution to the problem of drug prices. And, of course, generics become important in other parts of the world for very different reasons. Right. So um, if one was to write a history of generics from the perspective of India um, or a history of generics from the perspective of, say, Pakistan or Sri Lanka, generic policies emerge in very different ways. In Sri Lanka, uh, in the 1970s, you see the 
emergence of pro-generic policies that are very much based on a central state. Uh, in Brazil, similarly, you see state manufacturers of generics. There are many different histories of the generic drug that would be told very differently from different places. And a number of anthropologists and historians are beginning to look at these questions in what I think are some really exciting ways. Um, now, now, in terms of the frame of the global and what kinds of competition happen there, in terms of the reference towards this piracy and right. this problem of over ships being boarded, there are very, very uh, important questions of the, the broader political economy, of how, who controls generic markets and how and how they are standardized. And uh, the anthropologist Corey Hayden has been doing some fascinating work on this lately, looking in different sites in Latin America um, and trying to understand how different ways to sell the same drug um, in Mexico, for example, or in Brazil have generated these different tiers of where you can pay more for more exacting standards at similarity, and yet it's also locked into legal and political battles over, well, who can claim to be producing the same drug? And many policies taking shape in places like Brazil and Mexico and Argentina are increasingly favoring multinational generic producers over local generic producers. So even within the generic, again, this proliferation of different ways of being a generic company has ramifications that are connected with globalization in very powerful ways today. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> so just as we wrap up, what are you working on now? <laughs> so, oh, that's a, thank you. I, so I've, um, I'm working now on a project uh, on a history of telemedicine, actually. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, you know, taking this interest in pharmaceuticals as technologies that invoke powerful ways of understanding how we see the world and how we produce, uh, how, how, we, how, do we, how we categorize health and illness, for example, um, which, of course, through my first two books, I'm making a bit of a lateral move from pharmaceutical technologies towards communication technologies. So I've become very interested in how it is that there's an, an attraction and a promise to this idea of doing medicine at a distance, um, but also a set of anxieties and fears over what is lost and what is jeopardized in that process, which you can see very actively in contemporary debates over electronic medical records and, te and telemedical systems. But if one looks back in the late 19th century, one finds very, very familiar terms of debates about the introduction of the telephone in medicine or the text pager in medicine. And so realizing that there's this whole field of studying the history of communication technologies in medicine that has largely been ignored by our field. I, I've found some fascinating materials and questions in there. It's a, it's a very new and open landscape for me, but um, it's, it's actually it's quite fascinating. Wow, that sounds really awesome. <laughs> I look forward to hearing more about that. Well, anyway, thanks so much for listening. And Jeremy, thanks so much for, uh, for sitting down and talking with me here. Uh, we're going to go we're gonna go hear some uh, more talks from other scholars in the history of science. But uh, you know, uh, tune back in in a few few weeks or so, and I should have uh, you know some more interesting talks for you as well. So thanks so much for listening. This is New Books in Medicine. See ya.